this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show this week. First topic is medicine derived from the cannabis plant. Sophie Hayes is a registered nurse and the clinical trial manager at LVL Clinic. They're helping patients with a wide variety of problems. MS, EDS, like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, back pains, a huge range of conditions that we do help manage. And they're also conducting a large trial into the use of these drugs, and Sophie explains that. Then, does anyone know how most of the fruit and veg available in supermarkets is grown? Nearly 80% of the produce in supermarkets is hydroponically grown. Kelly Seaman from Aqualabs tell us all about hydroponics. So please do stay with us for a great show. Thank you. that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. So my first question for Sophie Hayes, who's the clinical trial manager at LVL, which is a clinic specialising in medicines derived from cannabis, was what kind of people can you help? So we are a pain clinic, so a chronic pain clinic that's using cannabis-based medicines to sort of manage the multitude of symptoms that go along with chronic pain. So we take patients anywhere between the age of 18 and 85 who have chronic pain conditions that are currently unmanaged um, but unfortunately at this point not cancer pain cancer related pain so it's chronic pain relating to MS, EDS, like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, back pains, a huge range of conditions that we do help manage. Okay but not but not cancer that's interesting is there a particular reason for that it just that cancer-based medicines don't work so well or or what? No, so it's purely because of the research that we're conducting at the moment is focused on non-cancer chronic pain because for pain related to cancer, there's a, a even more complex multitude of variables that go along with that contribute to that pain and that need to be managed, including the underlying condition. So right. um, that's why for research purposes, we're f- focusing on this a separated group. Okay. I definitely want to get on, later on in our chat, uh, into the research and the, the trials that you're doing 
But let's start yeah. off, if I may, with just kind of concentrating on on the clinical aspects. So you 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 treat people with cannabis-based sort of medicines. And generally, people you treat are they sort of people at the end of their tether and like come to you and say, "Look, I've tried everything. This is kind of my last act of desperation, almost." Yeah, I mean, both patients and their doctors, I think. So we get referral letters from doctors saying, you know, this um, my patient has asked me to sort of refer you, them into your clinic because we have, between us, tried both non-invasive and invasive methods. They tried multiple medications. They've tried TENS machines, physiotherapy, like osteopath, acupuncture, yoga. So people, we tend to be, see people who are very engaged in trying to manage their symptoms in as many different ways as they can and still you know they're, they're part of that statistic of eight million people from the british pain society that currently live with unmanaged pain in the uk right. um so yes we see people who really are uh, they've exhausted all other avenues so but generally your patients are very motivated to, to get better oh absolutely 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 and i mean if you were living with chronic pain it's something that you're constantly looking for research projects programs you're always looking for something that could potentially alleviate what you're experiencing sure, um, sure, and sure. we're just offering something new yeah I, I guess like you know I, i've been lucky in my life so far you know like i've, I've had the odd ache and pain here or there but I've, i don't think i've ever had uh chronic pain so uh, yeah i can only be thankful uh, for that um yeah right so with with pain medications quite often when you read the packet it says you know don't operate heavy machinery, don't drive a car, this sort of thing. So with, with cannabis-based medicines, uh, are there similar sorts of rules, guidelines? How does it work? So at the moment, we advise patients to, because we're administering uh, an inhaled sort of short-acting medication in the form of a cannabis flower, that you don't operate heavy machinery, get in your car and drive, cook uh, for about two hours after administering the medication, just as a safety precaution, essentially. But otherwise, in terms of driving, it's treated as a controlled drug in the same way opioids are. Right. Okay. So, um, but it's not, a, if you take opioids um, for, for pain, it, it says on, on the packet, you know, we suggest you don't drive. But everybody does, don't they? They've got a headache, they take one of these things and drive to work. Well, I mean, it's not, it's one of those things where as the healthcare professional, it's not something you recommend. We're all well yeah. aware that patients will do what they need to do to get on with their lives. Um, yeah. So it's what we recommend that they do, obviously. I suppose what I'm getting at and what I want to get across is cannabis-based medicines don't make you high. They don't space you out so you can get on with your life. That's, that's, I suppose, what I'm rather clumsily trying to uh, say or ask. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's got a mu they've got a much better safety profile than opioids. Um, and I think a lot of pain specialists in the UK are at that point where NICE, who sort of regulate the sort of who give out the guidelines on how to treat your group of patients for every speciality, NICE has slowly whittled away the resources that pain specialists have available to them so they're now right. recommending right. that opioids are not appropriate for long-term pain management which i think a lot of pain specialists and chronic pain patients were well aware of but it's actually been formalized so now this whole field is looking for this other group of medications that could um provide elite like provide relief from the symptoms without all the negative side effects of sort of addiction a lot of pain patients talk about 
not you know it dampens the pain but it doesn't enable me to engage with you know my work life my family life and and the word zombie is used very often it's a very disassociative medication whereas cannabis medicines if it's the right dose for the right patient and it's that for at LVL we're researching the THC and CBD balanced flower products um then it shouldn't impair you in the way that opioids do right okay that's very good one thing I, I have seen kind of on the news in, 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 in general terms and looking at social media is that actually ensuring the quality of medicines derived from cannabis can be quite difficult because uh, there are a lot of variables because you get different sorts of pa- cannabis plants from different places. Um, so is, is, is that an issue? And how do you guys deal with that? So, yeah, so for anyone who is wanting to produce cannabis medicines and import them into the UK, they have to meet uh, EU GMP guidelines. So those are the standards are required to be considered EU a safe medicine. EU GMP. What does that stand <laughs> um, for? And the MHRI. Oh, EU GMP will be EU European Union um, General Med- uh, That I don't know, actually. I should know. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the it's the standard of regular it's the standards that are required. we, we ask the difficult questions on uk health i know you asked me the wrong <laughs> but um so and you also need to have a license from the mhra who are the medicine health regulation authority that one i did know right. um to um administer it safely to patients in the uk so um but you're right there's a huge amount of variables um that go into that need to be controlled when producing cannabis medicines and obviously the basis of all cannabis medicines will be cannabis flowers and whether you extract the isolates out of those flowers or not um then but the flowers they can vary for like the amount of carbon dioxide in the air the ph of the soil like the temperature of the room like that's all needs to be controlled and that's why producers of cannabis medicines be they uk based or abroad they need to be able to demonstrate their ability to produce consistent batches over and over again and they also need to be able to demonstrate that should any part of their system break down that there are backups should anything happen you're supposed to be able to provide that medication that people rely on regardless of what happens sort of force majeure um so yeah it's a complex process to go through. I, I can imagine the key is consistency Absolutely. I think and it should be expected from a medication that you would have good quality, consistent supply. Um, For us, the flower that we're uh, we're prescribing as part of our research program is um, produced by a company called Aurora, which is a Canadian company. Um, And I've worked in cannabis medicines and clinics that prescribe them for a number of years now. And that particular producer has had very few to no issues with supply into the UK um, at all, which is really uh, uh, incredible, really. (laughs) Right. So are the plants produced kind of indoors under factory conditions or out in the fields? How does it work? They are produced... um, indoors because that is going to be the way that you control variables much more effectively if you grow outdoors they would be much diff- much more difficult to manage that so i know that places in sort of zimbabwe and south africa for example they can grow out they do grow outdoors but they're not producing them to the standard that we require in the uk right okay interesting all right so so that's the clinic let's go on to the the trial bit because you are you know you're, you're doing a trial that um all your patients are sort of in the trial. Is, is that is that correct? 
Yeah, so essentially what we've um, sort of agreed with uh, Research and Ethics Committee is that the processes that patients will pay to be patients at our clinic. So um, that's a £99 initial onboarding cost and that covers your inhalation device being sent out to you, it covers your first consultation and the processing of the test. So we require a negative urine THC test so that we can we can know for sure that any benefits patients may be experiencing are from the medication that we've prescribed them. Um, and they also so they're not they're not asking, using cannabis in any way, shape or form before the trial. Even if they have, they need to do a washout period beforehand. Right. So we know that this particular medication, the effects it's having, so we can accurately measure that. And the other interesting thing to me is that we're doing a uh, genetic saliva test as well. So patients will put a uh, spit into a vial essentially that we'll post out to them. They post it back to us, we send it to a lab and it gives us um, an overview of, um, it identifies particular chromosomes that show us the um, like risk factors in terms of how, um, how at risk they are of developing mental health disorders if they are um, sort of prescribed this medication. So it's like an extra safety net that, they, that we have as part of the process. Um, yeah. And then the medication, like each month, is a £299 a month. So um, that is for a 24-7 nursing care access and for the single dose of 250 milligrams of this balanced flower to be sent out by a secure courier to them. So essentially, that's the experience of being a patient at the clinic. And then we will say, I will send a consent form to each of those patients to say, yes, they're happy to share their data into um, the clinical trial, which is the most exciting part of what we do, I think, or for me anyway, as the clinician, which is that if we can start providing the evidence that NICE has asked for to start considering making it available on the NHS, we have to start with clinical trials. And that's what sure. we're trying to sort of achieve, basically. So. Yeah. That's All right. the most let, exciting part for me. Interesting. Let, let me just ask you a question about something you mentioned a bit earlier, this saliva test. Okay, so yeah. now you, yeah. you, do, you, you do hear stories of how some people, uh, if, if they've taken cannabis recreationally or, or whatever, it can affect them in later life. And so the stories I've heard of, of people become kind of paranoid uh, about various different things. I mean, and there are probably other things as well, but just... I suppose two questions. How how common are these sorts of side effects? And is enough known to really know what people might uh, experience them? No, it's a good question. I think it's something that both sort of healthcare professionals and patients sort of worry about, essentially, because it's the thing that's been sort of talked about most in the media. It's like a negative side effect. And it is a possible side effect of uh, THC in particular and a lot of the evidence that has been produced to give us the statistics where we say, you know, this is something that can trigger uh, schizophrenia for people who are predisposed or have a family history. You know, that is a real risk. Um, but that evidence has come from very high THC, very low CBD um, strains of cannabis, and they're often combusted or smoked, which is also not recommended as part of a prescription. If you smoke a prescription, it's void. of legal Its legality is void. Um, so the possible side effects do include that. The that potential uh, of sort of triggering uh, a psychotic event if you have a family history of it or you are prone to um, that experience anyway that you would not be appropriate for a prescription of cannabis much like many other medications there's the screening proce process oh. that people need to go through in order to be eligible for prescription and for us that's 
a major one. Another major one is chronic pain patients who experience, um, who have had major organ failure. So that's another significant one, or they've had a, an organ transplant in the last two years. Um, again, that's because of the uh, potential for like tachycardia, um, so fast heart rate resulting from THC administration that could cause arrhythmias. If you've got cardiac history or cardiac disease, it can exacerbate that. Right. Um, and I can imagine you have to be careful with all kinds of medication, though. <laughs> if, if I mean, if you have a, if you've had a heart transplant, mm. whatever medication you're taking, it's going to have to be uh, thought about and checked out pretty seriously. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that for. You know, for me, the standard of or the gold standard of any healthcare is to view that that person as like an individual and assess their their life, their lifestyle, their symptoms and what they're telling you is their experience as a whole. That's your job as the clinician to assess what the decision is that's going to be best for that person between you. So, yeah. All right. Okay. so let's get on to the trial, because this this is a big part of, of what you're doing now. I'm. I have to say, I don't know much about clinical trials. I think it's probably quite a large, complicated subject. Um, but what I, I do suspect is it's quite easy to do them wrong. Is, 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 is that kind of true? And tell us about the design of your study. Yeah, of course. So essentially, um, there is like a, a hierarchy of different kinds of research, essentially. So the absolute gold standard is referred to as a randomized, double-blind, controlled trial. So that essentially means you've got a control group, uh, you've got your active group and your control group, you've got a placebo. So no one knows exactly what it is that they're getting. Um, that's quite difficult with cannabis, particularly inhaled cannabis, because it's a known psychoactive effect. People are expecting it. They tend to know very quickly whether or not they have, the, have a placebo or not. Um, and that in itself skews data because people will drop off and go, well, I know it's a placebo, I'm not going to move forward with it. Yeah. So what we're yeah. doing is the next best thing, which is a controlled trial. So we've got um, the design is that we will have 5,000 patients who will receive what we would call standard of care for pain management. So all the things that are available for pain management currently, but opioids, benzodiazepines, like gabapentinoids and all the sort of supportive therapies that go alongside that in pain management programs. And then we're going to compare their quality of life scores and their NRS pain scores. So the score that I know patients love when I ask them hundreds of times, if you could give your pain score out of one to 10, zero being no pain at all, 10 being as much pain as you could ever imagine. Um, it's a very subjective thing, but it's uh, the standard tool that we use, and we compare right. those things. Well, I suppose you can't do anything else, can you? I mean, because it, it is such a <laughs> subjective thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I before this role, I worked in A and E, and what people say is a high level of pain, and what they experience is a high level of pain that will differ from person to person. Some people are very reserved about them being vocal about their pain. Um, and other people are very vocal about their pain, so it's very different. Yeah, actually, I do remember. So my 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 dad, he's passed away now, but one time he broke his hip, mm. and um, a medic came and didn't believe that anything could have been seriously done. And my dad was saying, "Oh yes, it does hurt a little bit." Like he must have been in unbelievable agony. Had to go to hospital, get the hip repaired. So yeah, different for different people. I don't think I'm quite as um, 
I, I would have made more of a fuss, I think is probably the simplest way of saying it. Oh, I think the younger, the younger we are, the more vocal, as, a, as my experiences, we tend to be. My generation are going to be terrible to look after in care homes, which I've also done because we are, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So you're, this, this is kind of an interesting question when it, when it comes to the, the ethics of, of, of some of these tests, because you mentioned you're not using a placebo. But if, you, if you're if you're testing a drug and you think, oh, this is the greatest, the latest new drug for dealing with whatever it might be. And then so half the people get the best thing for for this disease. The other half get a placebo, which is a sugar pill. You know, is that very fair? It's the only accurate way of testing it. I think yeah. the essentially if you, if you design a trial or you you have an, a research project that you want to undertake, you have to have it approved by Medicine Health Regulation Authority and Research and Ethics Committee. And the Research and Ethics Committee's job is to make sure that your design keeps patients safe, it's not going to cause uh, data bias, all of those things. Um, and you have to have it approved by them. It obviously, what will happen many, many times throughout a number of years for people designing trials, so we took about five years to design our trial, that you present it to both of those committees and they come back with suggestions. This is what we're, we're concerned about as part of your design. This is what needs to change. So there's a lot of sort of back and forth. And I think what people, uh, and certainly uh, moving from frontline practice to research has been interesting to me is how long this process is. And that's the, um, that's the challenge, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. All right, so back, back to your trial. You're comparing the best, pain management that exists at the moment whatever that may be so that could change for each each patient but it's the best that the nhs can help with yeah compared to um your medicines so what on your side are the very different variables that you're trying out so things that we are measuring are the nrs pain score so how pain how much pain that person is experiencing or experiences themselves experiencing every day um, and the quality of life um, factors. So, you know, sleep, engaging in work, engaging with family life, that kind of thing. Um, and also we're sort of also looking at how many patients are feel safe to come off of their opioid medication, which is going to be really fascinating. Um, so that's, and often that's what patients come with to say, you know, I've been on morphine or oxycodone or tramadol for five to ten years now every day and I would like to come off of it is there a possibility and this is something that we're hoping to achieve as well so there's these are sort of the sort of core three things are efficacy quality of life and um this secondary reduction of opioids yeah so th th those those are how you measure the results what I really meant was what within the cannabis-based medicines are, are you changing because presumably you don't give all your patients exactly the same thing so we do get, so we give all the patients exactly the same medication, the same dose. And so the uh -huh. formulation is a balanced uh, cannabis flower with 8% THC, 8% CBD, which sort of translates as about 80 milligrams THC, 80 milligrams CBD per gram of flower. And they're going to receive a quarter of that once a day um, in an inhaled form, basically. So we're measuring, so one of the main things is that there are lots of different clinics in the, in the country that prescribe different, lots of different cannabis medicines in different formulations. But what a lot of medical, to try and integrate this new group of medications into normal clinical practice, we're very used to this um, standard 
uh, weight, it's like standard dose per kilogram of weight for each person. And what we're kind of, and that doesn't exist for cannabis medicines at this point. So what right. we're trying to do is start a seminal sort of piece of work that will start to be, to work that out, what the standard dose might be. Okay, so that's, again, it's part of integrating this unusual group into standard medicine. All right. So on your side, the cannabis-based medicines that patients are getting is all the same. It's being delivered in the same way, the same dose, et cetera. And then on, on the other side, the, the pain help they're getting from the NHS could, could actually be different for each of them. It's just kind of the best, most appropriate um, in the current system. Yeah, right. and I think what we've, what we've said is that the, at the end of the study, the, the efficacy evidence will be reviewed by NICE and also NHS England. So what we're trying to sort of demonstrate is that, you know, this is what's available now with this is what could be added to your toolbox, to your care regime. And this is how much more effective their pain management was when this was added to what you've already got. So that's kind of the, the core of what yeah. we're doing. All right. No, I understand. So and how long has the, has the trial been going? So we are at what we what's called a feasibility stage. So as part of this uh, research and ethics committee, um, sort of giving feedback on your design. So what they've said is that we're attempting the clinical trial is attempting to manage five thousand patients per group. So what they've asked us to do is um, do a shorter three month study where we basically test out the design of the larger trial. So we it's basically an opportunity for us to identify if there are any design flaws essentially so that's going to be three months long we're in that recruitment phase for that at the moment um, and that will be a minimum of 100 people okay all right so you've got over three months before you kind of potentially get some results yeah so and it would be three months and then after that feasibility study the results will be have to be resubmitted and then the there will be sort of potentially a three to five month gap and then we'll be starting with the larger clinical trials so it's again it's a very, it's a very long game so when it people is, say yeah. you know when when will you know the answers you're like oh, it could be it could be four years time it could be one year's time we've, we've right. said that nice has said that at a 12 month period after one year they'll review the evidence if it's if it's significant enough that we're evidently saying that 90 percent of the patients are getting over 50 percent benefit then we may not need to continue. It may be enough data to sort of demonstrate what we were hoping to demonstrate. Um, so it could be one year, it could be three years. I suppose what I was trying to get at, again, in my clumsy way, is when can I invite you back on? So I was hoping it might be just over three <laughs> about months. four years' time. Yeah, a while yet. Um, <laughs> a right. little while, but I, I, promise to, I promise to let you know when we can share some data with you. Okay. But if, if people are listening to this and thinking, you know what, I would like to be part of the trial, are you, you're still recruiting people for the trial? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, we are we're recruiting people to be patients to be paying patients at the clinic, and then we'll be consenting them separately into the trial. So um, if people are either interested in finding out more information about uh, the study or the clinic, then they can contact the clinic on the like the number. So the number zero triple three one zero three 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 six six, and one of the nursing team will pick it up. Or you can go to the website, uh, lvlhealth.co.uk. Uh, let me just double check that one. <laughs> so that is uh, lvlhealth.co.uk. Uh, and they, we have a register your interest. So you can just fill in a short form and say, you know, I just want to find out more. And again, right. one of the nursing team will contact you. Okay. But you, you, you can still be a patient of the, of the clinic, whether you're on the trial or not. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're a functioning pain clinic, but this yeah. is the, the additional new exciting thing that we are yeah. doing. And, and if if you are part of the trial, do you get anything more than just knowing you're part of the trial and sort of helping mankind? <laughs> it, so it's it's mostly it is mostly that this kind of um, there's two sort of for me when we talk to patients, it's two different benefits of taking part one of them is this sort of contribution to this larger body of evidence that mean more people will access it via the NHS um, but also what we've said is that there is um, NHS England have agreed that at the end of the study they will review a cost comparison data set that we're going to produce that basically says this is how much it costs the NHS to look after the 5,000 people who would have been attending the NHS anyway and this is how much it costs for those 5,000 people to receive the medication. And NHS England have said that if they um, can see that there are, the effects are significantly improved and um, that the cost is lower than the standard of care, then they will consider mo- paying for that patient's medication moving forward. Now, it's something they've said they can still consider. So it's not something we can promise, but it's certainly uh, a potential benefit is that if you could join the trial, you may not have to pay for medication after that three year period moving forward. Cool. All right. Look, this is really interesting. Good luck with it. Um, <laughs> Thank you uh, very much. And, and I, I hope it goes well. Thank you very much indeed for chatting. And yeah, tell us when you've got some results and come back on. Absolutely. Yeah, I will. Thank you. All right, Sophie. Thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. This show is cool. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with zero zilch zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Kelly Seaman from Aqualabs is an expert on hydroponics and she's been on the show before. And in spite of that, she... Uh, came back when I invited her. So I started off by thanking her very much for doing just that. My pleasure. Thank you for having me back. And um, your, your company is called Aqualabs. And uh, you just told me that you're, you, you make something called Shogun. So tell me, that's, that's not a great big four-wheel drive, is it? What is it you make at Aqualabs? So we make liquid fertilisers. Um, Shogun Fertilisers is a hydroponic um, liquid fertilizer solution. Um, we've been established now for oh, be ten years next year, um, nearly a whole decade. I can't believe how the time's just actually flown. Um, it, it's kind of it's just run away with itself. To sort of go oh, ten years we've been well, established. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> so, so, so at its at its heart, all this stuff is for the, um, the the industry, if that's the right term, or the way of growing things of hydroponics. 
That's correct. Yes, um, and, and, and probably a lot of people are thinking, well, what, what is hydroponics? Yeah, including um, me, really. Well, it's it's basically growing plants without soil, um, as as the name kind of suggests. It's hydro, so it's do with water uh, and ponics as a um for, for actually sort of growing or a system as such um so it, it's all based around water and it's the removal of soil so you have to supply all of the nutrients the plant needs and there's many different methods of doing this you can do what's known as a deep water culture system which uses just water and the roots grow down into this solution of nutrients so this solution will contain things like potassium and phosphorus and nitrogen and the key elements that the plant needs to actually grow. And this is what we produce. We produce these uh, liquid fertilizers uh, that go into these hydroponic systems. But then you've got other kinds of hydroponic systems where you've got an open root network and there's just a uh, film of uh, nutrient solution that is uh, pumped over that. And that's known as a nutrient film technique. You've also then so got- So they're not completely immersed in water. They're just kind of damp, but they're not immersed in water. Well, that is that kind of method. So as I say, there's many different methods. You can use a media-based hydroponic system. So you can use rock wool. You know, the stuff that you insulate your roofs with um, that you put into the attic, use that to grow it in because it's completely inert. And then you would use a dripper um, into that kind of media. You can also use clay pebbles. You could use sand. You can use perlite. You can use vermiculite. Um, so there's lots of many different methods. It's basically growing without soil. That is what hydroponics is. Okay, all right. So how much of the, the food we eat is, is actually grown in this way? Well, a lot of people don't realise that, that nearly 80% of the produce in supermarkets is hydroponically grown because it's ideal for mass production. Because you're supplying the plant with everything it needs, you're going to get maximum productivity out of tomatoes, out of strawberries. You wonder why you've got strawberries in the supermarket at Christmas and you can put that on your your nice uh, cheesecake at Christmas. And it's because they're hydroponically grown in other countries, such as Spain. But this can be a bit detrimental. Sometimes it can actually end up lacking in flavour due to the fact that it's water that you're supplying. There's this constant uh, supply of actually water there for them. And there's also a lack of this mycorrhizal bacteria, which convert different elements uh, with around the root zone and actually do a lot of degrading, which can actually aid with the production of different tastes within um, plants as such as tomatoes and strawberries. Well, for sure. When I, when I go to the market, I quite often... Um, shop with my nose but uh, you know i'm sure you've experienced this. Uh, i'm sure lots of people have you go to the market you turn a corner and you suddenly get a smell you can't resist it and someone's got a load of strawberries and you can smell it from you know a long way off so you're drawn towards that particular stool holder and you buy some strawberries but equally quite often you you you, you know you buy some strawberries bring them home and they just don't smell of anything um it seems a bit of a shame that, that can be the terpenes that are in there and the sugars. Um, there's lots of different reasons, but the, the thing with hydroponics is, is that you're in 100% control with the plant. There isn't any degrading that needs doing to release elements so the plant can take them up. But as I say, there's, there's a lot of going off this, this, this kind of um, fungal web that's occurring around the root zone. As I say, there's this bacteria, mycorrhizal fungus that work together that, that do help 
help to improve flavors. There's been right. quite a few studies on this, and this is what the difference is with organics and hydroponics. So we don't state on anything that's hydro, it's hydroponically grown in the supermarket. But what you'll, you'll see is it, it says that it's organic and it generally means that it's not been hydroponically grown. But could you have um, something that's grown organically, which is an odd phrase, actually, because all the fruit I hate is it. organic. But, but that's one side. Yeah. What <laughs> everyone means when they say you can have something that's grown organically, but in a hydroponic environment could you so you don't use pesticides and you you, you don't use all the all the, the kind of things that protect the plants and protect the fruit could you call that organic and it's grown hydroponically not necessarily there are some organic fertilizers that you could use but you what you tend to find with hydroponic systems is there is a need because you're supplying everything to it you do need processed mineral nutrients which doesn't come under this kind of uh, umbrella of organics um, it usually needs a soil which has not had any fertilizers applied to it but i think it's that definition of organic what what part of the growing methodology is it that you're referring to as organic sure. is as you say is it pest control um, which comes into that is it what you're actually feeding to the plant um, and the, the, the environment itself so there's a lot of kind of um, levels of that terminology organic and, it, and it, as, you, as you mentioned there it's one that I I don't like because as a chemist I just say oh well organic means it's got carbon, carbon that, that's yeah. uh, uh, so so everything's organic and then it all depends which association that you're having the uh, registration with of being organic if they take that into consideration but generally mineral fertilizers additional mineral fertilizers don't come under the organic umbrella yeah okay all right so let's let's go back to the fruit what we actually eat um if it has been grown hydro hydroponically so maybe it doesn't smell quite as good as if it's grown another way does it have the same amount of you know vitamins and good stuff in for us to eat yes so the, the plant's still producing all of these it, it's still it, i think has a lot to do as well with the actual growing technique it's not just down to the fact that it's been grown hydroponically or organically there's organic stuff that you actually get that doesn't have this great smell to it right. um so there is the nutritional value the studies which i've seen there is no difference between the nutritional value um between a hydroponically grown um, plant and an organically grown plant um, but that's very much dependent on the growing technique and um, very much dependent on the the kind of the processing of the the plant afterwards well and the genetics of the plant is also important right so, yeah I was going to say actually is it also something to do with the fact that very often you've got to um, ship these these uh, tomatoes or what have you in so you might pick them a bit early before you would if they were in your garden. So they don't bruise when you're shipping them. And then you hope they kind of ripen en route. Um, is that, that that might be part of the process. I, don't, I know nothing about that. Do you, do you know anything about that? Well, there's, there's different kind of ripening processes. So once fruit has quite often been picked, it can go under a, pre a preservation kind of uh, method as well. So you can put it into a fridge so it doesn't rot 
um, as well as mature. But you can use um, a substance called ethylene in order to help the um, ripening of plants to encourage the colour development to occur. And sometimes that is applied um, to some crops in order to speed up the ripening process uh, after post-harvest. But then there's, as I say, there's the preserving methodology to stop it actually uh, the mold getting attached as well which can also cause problems with flavors as well so there's the application of those uh, in order to stop growth of gray mold it's a complicated business isn't it there's, there's not kind of one solution fits everything no definitely right. not and, and as you say that i think the air miles that is on a lot of our uh, produce that we, we get in supermarkets it is a big problem that the fact that it's not from a local farm just from down the road that was picked the day before it's been picked a week maybe it's two weeks previous and then traveled to ourselves and had to go all the way through customs as well well may, maybe hydroponics could help solve that i mean could we end up with you know uh, city farms which are essentially old office blocks which no one uses anymore because they're all working at home and convert those to high-rise farms. I mean, I just oh, made that up, but is that kind of possible? Yes, and it's happening. Um, there are farms uh, within the, the, the sort of high-rise blocks that's doing uh, this. The thing with hydroponics is it allows for areas within the desert to be used as well. So not just city areas. You've got you know barren areas which are supplying all of the, the, the water and the nutrient through hydroponics to the plants so they can grow within that area. So it, it, urban gardens can be flourished by using hydroponics but it is one of the ways that we will help to actually keep up with the, the current demand we have for food um such as fruit and veg yeah i'm just thinking if you suddenly got rid of all the food that was produced or grown by hydroponics overnight this would be pretty serious if 80 percent of what we buy in the supermarket is made that way Yes, it would. Uh, and I think the people don't quite realise how much is, is grown um, yeah. that particular way. So if we were to, say, um, adapt an old office block to hydroponics and take out all the chairs and desks and fill it up with hydroponic equipment, would it be, um, would that take an awful lot of energy? Because presumably when things are growing, they, you know, they need heat, they need light. Um, you know, and you've got to create that in environment if it's if it's inside. Yep. So you can use hydroponics in greenhouses and they do. So that's where your light would you would be using the natural sunlight, which is right. free. But if you were to convert something like an office block or to do indoor actual farming, yes, you would need to supply lights in the forms of either LEDs or high pressure sodiums, which would supply that energy so the plants can photosynthesize. That is very, very energy demanding, exceedingly yeah. energy demanding in order to keep up with that. You have to think that energy can't be created nor destroyed. It's just converted from one form to another. So if you, you're going to get that energy out of the plant, you need to put it in somewhere. And if you're not using the natural sunlight, you're going to have to put that in with artificial light, which at the moment with the, the prices of electricity, it, yeah. it, it is becoming very expensive. And so is, that, is that happening commercially anywhere in the UK at the moment, that sort of farming? Yes, it is. Um, there, there is farms that are indoors. So quite often they will you do microgreens, that methodology, in order to get maximum efficiency out of space. So you could do what's known as vertical farming. So rather than growing plants all flat on the ground, 
with hydroponics, what you can do is you can grow them upwards vertically in kind of pillars or posts or in tubes right. so that you're, you're getting the full space efficiency of where you are. And it's quite often with strawberries. They will uh, use a tube and uh, holes up the sides and then feed the nutrient in from the top and, and grow them in that way. Um, but it's, it's, it's about maximum efficiency of that space. But with, if you're growing indoors and not using natural light, it is, again, power. Yeah. definitely going to need a lot of power. Okay. But what about something else, which actually does involve power to some extent, using f fertilizer? Because I, I get the impression that if you use fertilizer on a regular farm, you know, out in the field, it's somewhat hit and miss. Uh, and you might use an awful lot more fertilizer than you really need because, you know, some gets wasted and spilt and all the rest of it. But with hydroponics, you can, you know, with pinpoint accuracy, use exactly what you need, which is important because fertilizer is pretty expensive. Yeah. And this is the other advantage of hydroponics, a lot more efficient with water use. So as you say, out in the fields, if you're spreading fertilizer on and it rains, that can then be washed away into local streams. So you've got a lot more pollution uh, with spreading fertilizer out onto the fields, whereas hydroponics, you can produce a closed loop system, which keeps it all together. And if you're really efficient in the way that you're, you're actually farming and, and using your systems and using things to monitor the moisture of the media, so it only actually feeds when the plant requires it and to monitor the nutrient levels, so it's only supplying exactly what the plant needs, there's a much more efficient way of actually using um, fertilizers to actually get out what you are wanting sure. from the plant so uh, so have people figured out the time of day that plants are eating as it were therefore need the fertilizer so is, that, is it that that advanced no it, it's not a kind of a time of day it's more about the point in the life cycle the plant is in. So right. in the earlier stages, when you actually sprout a little seedling, its demand for nutrients isn't high at all. So you know that you need much less nutrients. As that then starts to grow and become bigger and go into more of a vegetative phase, an aggressive growth where it's, it's putting on a lot of leaf mass and it's actually trying to grow so that it's producing all those solar panels that it needs. The plant demands more nitrogen around about that time. And what you can do is actually monitor the, the actual media the plant is growing in to find out what the plant is taking up and what is missing. So what it possibly could become deficient in. So you can correct that with your next actual nutrient feed to the plant, making it a lot more efficient. All right. And well, I think we, we've heard in the news with the problems with the war of getting fertilizer and how fertilizer is getting a lot more expensive. So, you know, this, is, this can only be making hydroponics more, more useful, I suppose. Definitely. Um, the efficient use is what we've got to become, is, is a lot more efficient yeah. in what we're actually doing. All right. This is, this is very interesting stuff. Do, do people um, do this at home, you know, sort of set up a hydroponics thing in, the, in their bedroom. It's kind of the reason I asked is because I saw an advert on, um, I was just on the internet somehow, I can't remember exactly where, for discreet delivery of hydroponic equipment. And I thought, that's a bit odd, discreet delivery. I, is, is that because people are a bit embarrassed that they might be cheating and, you know, the local allotment owners are going, hang on a moment, old matey boy, he's cheating. <laughs> or, 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 or is it because people use them to, 
to, to grow illegal drugs at home and they don't want people knowing what's been delivered? Well, the principle of growing all plants is exactly the same. Um, so I think you have to kind of make that decision yourself from that. <laughs> so, okay, all right. But I, I, I suspect this practice of, of growing things maybe people shouldn't be, as far as the law is concerned, might be more common than we might imagine. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely. And I think... I think the thing is with people who choose to do that, who choose to grow their own cannabis, it's quite often because they're using it as medicine and quite often that they will have a condition and they don't want to deal with the black market. They don't want to deal with criminals. They don't want to give criminals their money. What they want to do is produce their own medicine and make themselves self-sufficient so they don't have to deal with any of that. I worked in a hydroponic shop for nearly 10 years before I started Aqua Laboratories and I helped many, many people who were ill and whose partner was ill, was dying from cancer. And the, there's many people don't want to have to go through chains that aren't necessarily right and is supporting criminal activity. But what they know is that cannabis is beneficial to them. And back when I was working in the shop, we didn't have medicinal cannabis. The law hadn't changed. It was in 2018 when cannabis could actually be prescribed on, um, you know, you could actually get it on prescription, you could go to a doctor and get this. So a lot of people were forced and it was the only way that they could uh, do that. And there were, I've met a lot of people who were, you know, absolutely law-abiding citizens, but they just chose to grow a plant in order to treat themselves. And, we do desperately need a change in the law in this country. Right. Well, so I, we, ha we have chatted about this, this topic a little bit in, in the past. Um, so, in fact, maybe I've, I've, in, on my blog, I'll put links to some of the shows we've, we've had about it. It's, it's a whole other area of, of discussion, really. But if people have been listening to this and thinking, all right, um, hydroponics sounds quite you know, interesting. I'd like to give it a go or just find out more about it, find out more about how 80% of the food in our uh, supermarkets has grown. Um, what's a potentially a good, a good resource? I mean, has, has your company got a website or are there other places? If you check out the Shogun fertilizers, uh, that will tell you all about the actual fertilizer side of things. We also talk a little bit about um, actual the, the actual growing methodology. Um, there's um, One Stop Grow Shop is another really good resource with information on there as well. Um, but just type in hydroponics into Google. Uh, that is the best way, and that will that will that will actually start you off at Wikipedia. Um, which is a fantastic place, which we shouldn't reference Wikipedia, but there's a lot of good references to point you in the right direction to kind of get you started of going, ah, right, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, this is what it's about. Okay, that's what they're talking about. Um, but just look up myself, Dr. Callie Seaman. Um, I talk about hydroponics quite regularly as well. So follow me on Instagram or LinkedIn, um, any of those kind of social media sides of things. Um, and and we, we, I talk... Uh, quite a lot about as I say different kind of grow methodologies through hydroponics perfect Kelly that's excellent thank you very much indeed for chatting no problem have a great weekend thank you very much indeed to my guests this week and they were Sophie Hayes from LVL and Kelly Seaman from Aqualabs and of course a special thanks to you for listening that was the relaxed application
show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.